Hello, this is Rob from Fort Huron, and I listen to Beyond the Box Podcast. Hi, I'm Rayburn Johnson. And I'm Steve Sensenick. And this is Beyond the Box. Here's your invitation to explore life outside the box of institutional religion. This is a place where there are no walls to restrict our search for truth as we embrace the ambiguity of defining our life in Christ. So unbuckle your seatbelt, recline your chair, throw caution to the wind, and get ready for the ride that is Beyond the Box. Another Beyond the Box with the long lost co host. Back, 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 back from the dead. He's the sleep I done slumbering. Oh my god. I am gosh. like Lazarus Steve of the podcast. Sets an egg up in the hizzy. <laughs> Fo shizzle. Fo shizzle. Hey, listen, I, I got to say right off the top, Ray, first of all, it's great to be back with you, man. Always a pleasure. Absolutely. Uh, I got to say this off the top, though. The last time you and I podcasted, I was, and I'm going to get emotional when I talk about this. I was neck deep in work. So, and actually I wasn't neck deep. I was in over my head. And I asked our listeners to pray for relief and for some kind of break for me because I was so overwhelmed. And I got approval right after that for an assistant music director to come on board for the entire summer. Here's the best part. Not only, actually, I think I had approval prior to that. I knew he was coming, but my plan was for him to assist me on the two shows I had to do this summer. And my boss came to me right after the assistant came on and said, why don't you give him this one show completely so that you have extra time? Mm. And I gave him that show completely, which meant rather than me still working six days a week and still having to manage a lot, I actually, like, for example, this past week, they were teching that show. I had three days in a row completely off because they were working that show, which meant we couldn't work the other show that I was on. So I want to thank our listeners because I really honestly believe that a big part of that was asking you guys to pray for me. And a solution came that I had not even dreamed of. In fact, I was actually offended when my boss said it to me because I was like, but I want to do this. I want to do this. I was so mad. And my wife was like, why are you getting mad about this? This is what you've been praying for. So I relief. know. Exactly. I didn't even see it. I'm, I feel so foolish admitting that. But it, it was it's true. I was mad for like 12 hours. And then all of a sudden I looked at the schedule and I go, oh, yeah. If I don't work that show, I'm off this day and that day and this day. And my whole summer is going to be so much lighter as a result of my assistant, who is incredibly capable and such a blessing to me. He's been a real encouragement to me, too, as a person. He's come in. He said, man, you've been so overworked. Let me help you out. Let me take this off your shoulders. And um, So anyway, here I am, a much more refreshed and happy camper as a result of an answer to prayer. So thank Steve you all very much. Sensenig 2.0. <laughs> no kidding. But I wanted to make sure to get that out there because you guys are the best. This podcast community is awesome, Ray. I'll tell you what, man. We have I, I have just so enjoyed watching the Facebook page over the last few months and how people mm-hmm. just 
you know, people have just been interacting with each other. They throw things up. They, they talk together. We don't even have to be part of it. We can be part if we want to, but right. I don't feel a sense of, you know, like there was, there was one particular conversation and I kept thinking to myself, do I need to say something? Do I want to say something? Yeah. <laughs> and you know, months gone by, I would have said something because I would have felt like I, I needed to moderate that or I needed to, you know, whatever. And, mm -hmm. you know, I just really felt a sense of, this is what community is. If you yeah. have something to contribute to the conversation, fine, but don't yep. feel compelled to contribute something unless you absolutely feel like you want to. Boy, that's so different from the uh, institution, isn't it? Man, it sure is. <laughs> Which guilts you into contributing whether or not you want to or whether or not you even have anything to contribute. <laughs> that, it's such it's such a freeing thing, Steve, because I yeah. know when we first started out the podcast, even though we were both outside of the institution, yeah. it's like, you know, I still felt... And and don't get me wrong. I mean, to some extent, I still feel some sense of responsibility. Oh, sure. But it's so far less than it ever has been where it's yeah. just like, you know what? This is a community. Um, sure, we record conversations and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, people don't need us to, to facilitate every conversation or to no. people don't need to know what we think about every topic. It's right. They're going to be just fine without us. <laughs> <laughs> I know. And you know, that's the, honestly, Ray, it's one of the things that has bothered me about evangelical ministry for a long time is that ministries become so focused around a person or a small group of people that the ministry then almost ceases to exist if those people aren't part of it. Yeah, that's right. And, and that bothers me. I mean, even down to the fact that a lot of well-known ministries name themselves after their founder or after their, their main leader to the point that it gives the impression that that person is absolutely integral to the ministry. And the reality is, and Paul tells us this in Romans and in first Corinthians, everybody's integral to the ministry. Yeah, There's no right. one person other than Jesus Christ that it all sits and falls on, you know? That's right. So yeah, I agree with you completely there. Even questions that are addressed to you and me on the Facebook page, other people jump in and start contributing to the conversation. Sometimes you and I don't even get around to answering them ourselves. Well, and I, and I just want to say, you know, while we're on that topic, if you guys out there in listening land, if you guys, <laughs> um, you know, if you put something up there and Steve or I don't put a comment on it, please don't take offense to that. No, don't. it's just a matter of, you know, this is a community and you know, just like, I was always the kid um, in Bible school and, you know, uh, in Sunday school classes and all those kinds of things in Bible college. I was the annoying kid that always had the <laughs> questions and always had to give my opinion on something and all that. And, you know, I'm trying yeah. to let the Lord dig that out of me still. Yeah. And sure, so sure. part of this for me is an experiment in learning to shut up. Uh-huh. So mm -hmm. there's times, you know, if I feel like I really want to say something, I'm going to say something. But if when I catch myself just feeling like, oh, I need to say something because dot, 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 then I'm right. just going to shut up. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Boy, I hear you on that because I know when I was pastoring, I always felt like I had to have an answer for everything. Exactly. I, I didn't I didn't think that it was acceptable to say, let me get back to you on that. Or I really just don't know. Uh, maybe it was acceptable to say, let me get back to you on it as long as I got back to him with an answer. But And it had to be um, a really solid, foolproof answer, too. Had to be solid and foolproof, and I had to be convicted of it. Uh, but yeah, just the, the freedom to say, I don't know, or I really don't have a thought on this subject at this point, um, that's something that we need to give ourselves permission to say. And we need to have the, the freedom with each other to, you know, 
there may be a you know time that that we well I, I think there have been times where you or I have suggested to the other, hey, would you like to podcast about this? And the other person says, I'm just not really feeling that right now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, so, okay, we put it on the on the shelf and pick it up some other time or, or not ever, and it's no big deal. Well, it's like, yeah. it's like I said before at one time on the podcast on one of the bumpers for one of the interviews, you know, um, how we always ask people to leave idea submissions. And right. I love when people leave idea submissions, but once again, if we don't, you know, if we don't do your submission, please don't be offended. A lot of the times it's just because, you know, we don't, yeah. we don't feel like we have a lot of value to say on that particular topic at that particular time. Right. So, you know, if, <laughs> if I don't feel like I have a really, you know, if I don't feel like it's worth listening to an hour of me ramble about something that I really, right. you know, I, I mean, it's like right now we, we have, I'll just give you a perfect example. You know, we've, we did an episode on homosexuality, I guess, two or three years ago. Yeah. And, you know, two or three years is a long time for you and me because. It is. <laughs> because my mind changes daily on things. <laughs> I don't even yeah. agree with myself half the time. I know. So, you know, we've had people, I've had multiple people either email us or put on the mm-hmm. submission page. You know, what do you guys think about homosexuality? Or can you do an episode on homosexuality? Right. And right now I'm kind of, I'm a little bit at the Brian McLaren place with that. Like what Brian McLaren <laughs> said a few years ago where he said, yeah, you know, I think we ought to have a moratorium, moratorium on, on homosexuality right? for the next seven years. Yes. And just, you know, why, why do we need to draw lines in the sand and do all this? I'm a little bit at that same place with a lot of topics where I'm just like, yeah. you know, I, I don't, I don't have anything that I really can confidently say about something. Mm-hmm. So therefore, you know, I'm not going to multiply my words and turn into a fool. Exactly. Yeah. No, I agree with you completely. And, and some of those topics have just been beat to death. But, uh, you know, there was a discussion recently on Facebook, and I, I believe it was Dwight Pond that started it. Yeah. If not, we'll give him the credit anyway. Uh, <laughs> Dwight's a, a really cool, uh, faithful listener. We've had uh, Dwight in the, the family for a while now. And a thoughtful um, listener. That's one thing I've always thoughtful. appreciated yeah. about Dwight. It's just really... I can always count on Dwight to, to come up with, you know, three or four questions that we never even thought of while yeah. we were discussing a topic. Yeah. So Dwight, we certainly appreciate you and appreciate your contribution to the community. Um, but this, he he really touched on something. I, this is one of the ones I didn't have a chance to jump in on Facebook and really comment on. But he touched on a topic that's that's actually been really heavy on my mind the last few months, and that's this um, this dichotomy that a lot of people like to draw Ray between the holiness of God and the love of God, as if they're in opposition to each other. Mm. And this really comes into play when we get into the subject of hell and uh, ultimate reconciliation, uh, eternal conscious torment, whatever, you know, people believe about the afterlife. Um, Frequently what ends up happening, like for example, I remember a couple years ago, uh, maybe it's not been quite that long, but there was a, a point a while ago where I posted on my Facebook status I don't understand why people get so upset. Actually, it was right after Rob Bell's book, Controversy. So it's been about a year and a half. Uh, So I don't understand why people are so, uh, uh, what's the word I used, Uh, offended by the notion that God loves everybody. Yeah. (laughs) And and I I think I specifically said, like, why are so many Christians bothered by the notion of God loving everyone? Hmm. And 
a very staunch Christian, someone I've known most of my life, uh, he was a, a very well-respected man in the church I grew up in, commented on that and said, well, as long as we understand that, you know, God has to punish sin and, you know, like immediately took it to the, well, there's this other side of God that you have to remember. Mm. Mm. And that has bothered me for a while, Ray, because I don't understand the notion that that God has characteristics that are conflicting. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I remember uh, in talking to Sharon Baker on the podcast last year, she was one of the first people to bring that up in my mind about the difference between restorative justice and retributive justice. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, I think that's the, that's the paradigm that really since Anselm in, in the 1100s, that's mm -hmm. really the paradigm that, that we've grown not only familiar with, but really comfortable with. And is retributive justice is retributive justice is this idea yeah. that justice equals punishment that justice is all about making sure that if someone suffered, someone else suffers to kind of equal out the scales of justice. Mm. And, you know, even, even in the American judicial system, um, you know, the, when you walk into a courthouse, you either see a picture or a statue right. of the woman blindfolded with the scales in her hands. And it's the idea yeah. that justice is blind, that yeah. justice doesn't take into account anything other than the wrong suffered and the fact that the the skills need to be balanced by that by another wrong on someone else, the eye for an eye, mm. tooth for a teeth concept. Mm -hmm. You know, when I think about that, I'm like, okay, let's play this out through the New Testament. Do right. we really believe that if if we call God the Judge of all, do we believe that God has a blindfold on, hmm. and that He doesn't take into account someone's history and someone's um, the genetics that someone has or the fact mm -hmm. that someone was maybe beaten or molested as a child. Do we really mm -hmm. believe he doesn't take those things into account? I, mm. I personally believe that God goes into justice with his eyes completely wide open, wide open, yeah. understanding all of the things that we don't about people's motives, people's hearts, people's actions, mm -hmm. and that, and that he judges truly justly. Whereas right. we try this, attempt at what we want to call blind justice as if we could be objective. Come on, people. Right. There's no such thing as objectivity. Come on. <laughs> right. I mean, unless you're God, there's no such thing as objectivity. So let's just get over ourselves already. <laughs> but, you know, we, we go into this thing trying to, trying to act as if we could be an objective judge mm -hmm. and simply dole out punishment in the place of wrong. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a total... I think that's a total misconception of even what the nature of justice is. Well, and not only that, there's this this added twist that Christians will say, well, justice was served at the cross. Hmm. That Jesus was punished for our sin and that appeased the Father and accomplished justice. And yet... Then they still turn around and say, but he still has to punish the sin of people who don't accept that and, justice. And even and even the whole idea that an innocent person suffering mm -hmm. for a guilty person is somehow justice. Just, yeah. <laughs> I mean, even that idea seems to be problematic to me. Basically, I agree. I mean, if, if we really believe in retributive justice, 
If that's mm-hmm. what the whole paradigm is about, then how do you punish an innocent man with the sins of every guilty person that's ever lived? Yeah, because if you think about it, the whole concept of an eye for an eye, which is basically retributive justice, it was not just that if I poke your eye out, somebody's eye has to come out. Right. It was if I poke your eye out, my eye has to come exactly. out. That's that's retributive justice, is a one-to-one relationship between crime perpetrator and crime victim. And the, the perpetrator then has to experience the same loss as the victim. But the notion that I could say, well, gouge my brother's eye out and call it even. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. That, that makes no sense. Well, we would never look at that as justice. It completely undermines, it, it, in my mind, it completely undermines the definition of forgiveness. Because for j- forgiveness, the whole point of forgiveness is that you release a debt that's unsettled. Right. And if Jesus, if the, what he was doing on the cross was paying our debts to the Father, mm-hmm. then it can't be said the Father was forgiving us. It right. Could, it could be said that the Father you know, was paid off. That the Father was paid off and Jesus forgave us. Yeah. But it couldn't be it couldn't be said that the Father forgave us. So to me the whole concept of what we even believe justice the whole definition needs to be, mm-hmm. if not tweaked, completely torn down, blown up, and reconstructed. Yeah. Well, let, let me go a, a, a slightly uh, different direction with this, too, in the same vein, though. He, here's the problem that I have with a lot of this, Ray, is we pit, like I said earlier, characteristics of God against himself, like holiness or justice, which those two often go hand in hand in, in evangelical theology. Holiness and justice versus his love. And people say, well, yeah, God loves, but he's also holy and therefore cannot tolerate sin. Here's here's my problem. And let me give me a moment to, to tease this out sure. a little bit because it'll it'll take a few steps. We assume certain things about holiness and justice that really are not defined clearly in Scripture. However, love is defined very clearly in Scripture. Hmm. 1 Corinthians 13 leaves no doubt whatsoever as to what love looks like and how love acts and how love behaves. So if we know that God is love, we know what that means from 1 Corinthians 13. But when we say God is holy and God is just, we have to fill in some gaps of the definition from our own logic and our own understanding. Mm. And so here's the problem is people go, well, God's holy, which means supposedly that God can't tolerate sin in any fashion. He cannot even look on sin. He can't be in presence of sin, etc. And we say God is just, meaning he has to punish wrongdoing. Now, you've already brought up one problem with that is that there are different types of justice. There's retributive and there's restorative. God being just may just as easily and quite possibly more probably <laughs> means that he sets things right in the end. Yeah. But anyway, so people say, well, if, if he's holy and just, he has to do certain things. Now, here's the problem with that, the way I see it. You also throw in the mix, and this is part of love, God is merciful. And we've talked before on the podcast about how in Isaiah, God tells us, you think that mercy extends so far, and I tell you that mercy goes way beyond what you can even think or imagine. Mm. So we know that the mercy that God 
has in his character is huge. Mercy basically says, you deserve one thing, but I'm going to give you something else, something better. You deserve punishment, but I'm going to give you reward or whatever. Um, you deserve to be punished for this sin, but I'm going to let you off the hook. That's the essence, I think I'm correct in saying, of mercy. If God has to punish sin because of his holiness and his justice, and God can't ever let anybody off the hook because of that, then if there is just one instance, Ray, of God letting anybody off the hook, we have a problem with those definitions. Mm -hmm. And we have recorded in Scripture many instances of God letting people off the hook. Mm. Many instances where he should have or could have punished something, and he said, no, my mercy is going to take over. Mm. And so in my opinion, that means there's not a problem with God's character, and there's not a contradiction of God's character. It's a problem with our definition and understanding of who God is. Yeah. And what we're left with is a God whose love is clearly defined for us, a God whose mercy is recorded numerous times for us, we have to then take the view of God as one who will and wants to and will do anything he has to do to forgive. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, it's it's almost like his nature, the fact that God is love, mm -hmm. compels him to forgive. It's that in so many senses, and I, and I said this to you before, the ironic thing is that so many people that so emphasize the sovereignty of God are mm -hmm. the same ones who will be quick to point out that God has to dole out punishment or God right. has to mete out, quote unquote, justice. Mm -hmm. um, as if God had to be compelled to do something when their whole approach to what it means for God to be sovereign would rule out the idea that he could be compelled to, to do something or be something. But you and yeah. I, while, while I don't, while I'm very, you know, much against that whole understanding of the sovereignty of God mm -hmm. and, and I would kind of throw their argument back at them and say, you know, God can't under your paradigm, God can't be compelled to do anything. Therefore you're wrong. Right. Your, your, <laughs> your argument's self-defeating. But here's what I would say on my side. I do understand God as what well, some some people would define God as one who cannot be compelled to do anything. Right. He's completely sovereign and therefore nothing can compel him outside of himself. Mm -hmm. But my understanding of God is someone who's continually compelled. Mm -hmm. Um I, I know um uh, John Sanders, who's one of the um he's a he's a theologian who's a real big proponent of open theism. He, uh -huh. he wrote yes. a book, which I've not read as of yet, but I, I read a little bit of it, but the title I just love, it's called the most moved mover mm. because, you know, we've talked for years, you know, yeah, yeah. about the unmoved mover, that God mm -hmm. is the unmoved mover, that he, right. he is kind of the, the final source of all that happens. Right. Um, but what if God is actually the most moved mover and mm. that he's actually compelled on a minute by minute basis by his love and by his mercy. Mm -hmm. And when you think of it through that paradigm and you go back and read the gospels, you see Jesus continually saying that he was moved by compassion. 
Right, right. I don't ever exactly. remember saying he was he was moved by wrath. Now there is, you know, talks about the zeal for your house has consumed me when he when he gets the mm-hmm. whip and drives the money changers out of the or you know turns over the money changers tables, drop right. the animals out of the temple. But most of the time, you see it say that Jesus was moved by compassion. Right, right. So it seems like if there's anything that rends the heart of God, mm-hmm. or that somehow um, is compulsory toward mm-hmm. God, the only characteristic that we really have a good precedent for that in <laughs> is his yeah. love it's and his, his love. mercy. Exactly. And here's the interesting thing, too, is in the Old Testament, I can't remember where the verse is. You might remember this offhand, but, you know, one of the prophets said, just justice and mercy kiss each other. Right. Mm-hmm. The The idea that we've had these polar opposites called justice and mercy God comes along, redefines it, and says, no, justice and mercy. My justice is actually the outworking of my mercy. Yeah. That my mercy compels me to, to as N.T. Wright said, to set things right. Yeah. You know, yeah. My, my mercy compels me to do justice, which is basically to set the broken bones back into place. Mm-hmm. You know, to heal the eyes that are blind, mm-hmm. to, to set at liberty those who are bruised. That my compassion causes me to perform justice, which has nothing to do with punishment and everything to do with righting wrongs. Right. Because if just if you think about it, Steve, um, it's like people that have lost a loved one to murder. Mm -hmm. Justice for them in in the retributive sense is simply we, we even talk about the murderer being brought to justice. Right, exactly, and what we mean yeah. by that is that he either gets sentenced to life in prison or mm-hmm. he he gets the death penalty, and he's been brought to justice. Yep. But in reality, that family is still without that loved one. Yeah, exactly. That family still mourning. Nothing, nothing is set right. Mm-hmm. The only thing that happens is that this man's off the street, and he's being punished for the crime. But right. if you look at justice through, I think a more New Testament paradigm. Mm-hmm. It would actually it would ha- actually have to entail the resurrection of the person that had died, right? That the only thing that would set it right was for the act to be transcended mm-hmm. by by resurrection from the dead and a restoration to the family and the and the and the human community, mm-hmm. which seems to me to be the exact thing that the New Testament is all about. That there is a new creation. Yeah. That we can participate in. Yeah. And that resurrection will one day happen and an ultimate reconciliation will one day take place so that justice is eventually done and every wrong is transcended and gets turned back into a right. Mm-hmm. So it seems to mm-hmm. me, apart from resurrection, there really can be no justice. Apart from restoration, there can be no justice. Right. You know, it's interesting because we have said with regard to atonement theories that what you believe happened on the cross says a lot about what you believe about God, Mm -hmm. who you believe God is. And I'm starting to realize Ray that that goes way beyond atonement theory. It does. That really just about everything that we believe in our faith says something about who we think God is. Yeah. Yeah. And if if we believe in the sacrifice of Jesus still meaning that people go to hell, that says something about God. Yeah. 
about what we believe about God. If we believe that God has to punish sin, no matter how much he loves the sinner, then that says something about God's character. That tells us something about what we believe about God. And I think the problem is, in the same way that our view of hell has been so colored by Dante and paintings that we've seen and other images superimposed on a biblical concept, our view of God has, I think, been extremely colored, much more than we want to admit, by what others have said about God, mm -hmm. not about what God revealed about himself. That's right. Because we know for a fact that God tells us he revealed himself through Jesus. Jesus made that very clear. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. That's right. I can only do and say what the Father does and says, and what he tells me to do and say. And Hebrews drives that point home in the very opening of the book, that God has revealed himself to us through Jesus. Mm -hmm. That's how we know the Father. So if anything that we're talking about contradicts Jesus, we have to be willing to challenge that view. We have to be willing to question why we hold to that view. Mm. And, you know, like I, I've said this before, I'll repeat it again. Holiness is often defined as cannot tolerate sin, cannot be in the presence of sin. Or at least that's the, the effect of holiness on God's being, mm -hmm. supposedly. Mm -hmm. If Jesus is a revelation of the Father, and all Jesus spends his time doing is hanging around with people who sin, we have to rethink holiness. That's right. That's right. We have to. We're forced because, to. Yeah. Jesus didn't mind being in the presence of sin. As a matter of fact, that, that, it seems like he preferred it. He preferred it. That's not to say, and let me drive this point home really clearly, that's not to say he condoned sin. Right, right. But he did not separate himself from those who practiced it. Yeah. And by most evangelical standards today, we would do the exact opposite. Mm -hmm. We don't want to hang around homosexuals. We don't want to hang around people who have had an abortion. We don't want to hang around people who drink. We don't want to hang... You know what I'm saying? Yeah. There's this constant avoidance of not just sin, but sinners. In fact, the way I was brought up, I was always told, they used the verse, avoid the appearance of evil. Yeah. <laughs> and avoiding the appearance of evil meant you don't hang around with people who are doing evil. Well, Jesus himself was called a drunkard. Yeah, yeah. Because he hung around people who drank. I mean, golly, he's the one changing even, the water to the wine. Exactly. You know? Into Welch's grape juice, yeah. <laughs> um, and, you know, uh, I would imagine that he probably consumed wine himself. I mean, he certainly did on the cross. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and during the, the uh, Passover celebration, right. that was wine. But anyway, uh, all this to say, why is it that we are so resistant to letting Jesus define the Father and his characteristics, as opposed to either the Old Testament or even human philosophy. Well, I, I think you just hit on a point uh, when you when you asked that question, and you said as opposed to the Old Testament, that's the problem. A lot of it comes yeah. down to our foundations in what we believe about biblical inspiration, and right. the and this idea of the flat flatly inspired book. Yes, um, Richard Beck, who we just had on the podcast, he wrote a mm -hmm. book called Unclean, which is all about this topic that we're talking about, about mm. um, purity and, you know, how, how we've defined holiness as purity and right. um, 
how we understand outsiders and sinners and all these kinds of things. And he brought out something that I just found fascinating. Um, he was talking about, he had, he had been reading Walter Brueggemann. Um, and Walter Brueggemann has this book on the Old Testament that, where he's basically helping you understand the theology of the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. And he talked about how in the Old Testament there were two we, we always try and harmonize everything in evangelicalism. We have this tendency right. to try and make everything fit with everything else. Nice and neat. And yeah. Ask Bart Ehrman about doing that with the gospel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. This is, we, we created a gospel that was never written. Yeah, it's exactly what he, yeah. I remember me, me and you said in that, uh, in that lecture <laughs> with a bunch of uncomfortable Christians, I think. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, well, what, shoot. One of my textbooks in college was the synoptic, uh, the synoptic gospel and it presented it's all about q it's every all. yeah it presented the the entire four gospels mashed together into one story yeah yeah which is totally which is yeah totally nonsensical yeah. but anyway in in the book he brings out something i just found fascinating he was saying that there were really two competing views of god going on in the old testament there was the priestly or cultic and the prophetic mm-hmm. And the priestly mm. class was all about maintaining purity, was all about maintaining boundaries. Right. Right. It was all about making sure that we uh, demarcate the lines between us and them, that they're clearly defined and that we can clearly tell who's in and who's out. Mm-hmm. And so we did that through certain kinds of rituals, certain kind of sacrifices and, and certain kind of purity codes that would maintain the unclean outside the camp and the clean inside the camp. Right. And then here here comes along the prophets. And the prophets over and over and over again talk about how God desires mercy and not sacrifice. Mm-hmm. Basically juxtaposing the priestly system of of purity as holiness with the prophetic system of mercy as holiness. So that it's two completing competing and conflicting views of what holiness even is. Wait, hold on a second. Maybe this is where you're going with this, but the prophet said God preferred mercy. It says over and over again. It's fascinating. Uh Like uh, over and over through the prophets, multiple times, it says God basically says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Mercy and not sacrifice. And not sacrifice. How does a God who desires mercy and not sacrifice then sacrifice his son? Right. See, that, that blows a hole right there through penal substitution. Right, exactly, exactly. Oh, my goodness. I never even put that together in my mind. And well, it even, here's what's fascinating, Steve, with what you're saying. If you go over to Hebrews 10, mm-hmm. it's kind of a, you kind of get this microcosm of just as Jesus is getting ready to kind of rip through the veil of heaven and come into a little baby in the manger in Bethlehem, mm-hmm. you get kind of a view of like the pre-incarnate Christ talking to the Father. Mm-hmm. And it says this, it says, as the son prepared to enter the world, that this is what he said. Sacrifice and burnt offerings you have not desired, hmm. but a body you've prepared for me with burnt offerings and sacrifices. You took no pleasure or had no delight, but I have said, behold, I've come to do your will. That what Jesus is saying there as he's getting ready to enter earth. Mm-hmm. Is he saying it is not at all about sacrifice, about any of this cultic ritual, but right. it's about doing the will of the Father? That that's what he was sent to do was the will of the Father. Actually, let me—if you don't mind, 
let me let me just read that passage because yeah, go for it. I think it would. I, I just don't want to murder it. <laughs> <laughs> no pun intended. I happen to have a Bible sitting here, so let me open up. It might. You can give me some Jeopardy theme music here for a second. Do, do, do. Oh wait, we have to pay royalties on it then. Oh yeah, so let's not do that. No, well, we'll do some. Uh... Okay, hopefully it won't take me that long. <laughs> we should insert a little BTV theme music here. All right. <laughs> so uh, let's see. Hebrews 10. Here it is. Here it is. Um, therefore, this is Hebrews 10, starting at verse 5. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. Then I said, Here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, O God. And then it goes on to explain how Jesus is completely upending the old covenant with this establishment of the new covenant. Mm -hmm. And in reading that, we've looked at the new covenant as a fulfillment of the old covenant when really it seems to be a complete upending of the old covenant. Mm -hmm. It's completely God coming along and saying, no, you've missed the boat. I didn't. I mean, it even makes it, he even goes into detail. I have not desired sin offerings or burnt offerings. He's like, mm -hmm. if it wasn't enough just to talk about sacrifice, I'll actually tell you exact offerings to make sure I get my point across. I don't delight in any of your burnt offerings, any of your sin offerings or any of your sacrifices. Mm -hmm. That's not what this whole thing's about. It's about mm -hmm. coming to do your will, O oh God. And what is your will? Mercy. Because yeah. here's what's fascinating. Richard Beck brings this out in the book. The That verse, and I can't remember originally where it's found. I'll have to look it up. But that verse, um, uh, you desire mercy and not sacrifice, mm -hmm. is the most quoted Old Testament verse in the New Testament. Hmm. Isn't that fascinating? Like Interesting. it's said over and over by the by the disciples, by Jesus, you desire mercy and not sacrifice. Mm -hmm. Isn't that fascinating? Yeah. So it's like it's almost like Jesus and he brings it out in the book that Jesus is making a decisive he in these two competing schools of who God is, Jesus makes a decided um break with the priestly class and completely aligns himself with the prophetic. And not only that, but in that same book of Hebrews, he goes on to even to, to me to really detail this out. As I was thinking more about this, it all of a sudden came to me. Hebrews is where you learn all about the priesthood of Melchizedek. Right. He completely makes a break with the Levitical priesthood uh -huh. and says that priesthood with the sacrifices and the offerings is not at all who I am. Right. I am a priest, not after the, the order, order of Aaron, right. but after the, the order of the order of Melchizedek, peace. whose name translates to be king of peace. Right. So my my reign and my, my priestly reign has nothing to do with sacrifices and offerings and everything to do with peace. Mm -hmm. Because God doesn't desire burnt offerings, sin offerings, or sacrifices. He desires mercy. Mm -hmm. Blows my mind that we've missed that. Yeah. Well, that's the thing, and the, the more I've thought about it, the more it starts to make a lot of Scripture make sense to me, you know? I mean, yeah. it, it just, I think the thing that has always been bugging me in the back of my mind, even before I could put a finger on it, 
was this sense that what we believed about God contradicted what Jesus revealed about God. Yeah. There always was this dichotomy of Jesus was one way, but the Father was another. Hmm. And yet Jesus is supposed to reveal the Father to us. So, you know, when Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, they can't be two different personalities. They And by personalities, I mean they can't behave differently. Right. They can't. They can't have two perspectives on things. They have to be the same mindset and the same character. Well, especially when Jesus says, I only do what I hear my father. Well, I see yeah. my father do and only say what I hear my father say. So when Jesus is willing to forgive sinners, and that even before the cross. And even without them asking for it. And without them even asking for it. And there, right before he dies, he says, Father, forgive them, because they don't know what they're doing. He's extending mercy and grace to the very people who are taking his physical life from him. So, I mean, how can you not see the character of the Father as extending mercy and grace even to those who hate him? And Jesus, not only not only on the cross... Not only in the way he lived his life, but like even the parables he told. I mean, the parable of the prodigal son, the most famous parable there is, right. he's making it plain that this is who the father is. It's it's the father yeah. that gives, even though he knows you're going to run off and use what he gives you to sin. And then at the right. end of the day, loves you anyway and receives you back and restores you completely. And restores you no to what you were. questions asked. Yeah. And the son did not ask to be restored to sonhood. Yeah, yeah. Sonhood, is that a word? Well, and, well and even even <laughs> his now. his pitiful attempt at repentance, the father yeah. completely interrupts him and says, yeah. shut up, shut you're up. my son. I'm not hearing <laughs> yeah. any of this stuff you're talking about. What are you talking about? You're here, that's all that matters. You're here now, that's repentance. Yeah, you are he here came now, back, that's repentance. He came back saying, let me be a servant. Yeah. And the father would have nothing of that. Didn't even stop to hear it. Yeah. Completely said, interrupts him and says, hey. You were dead, now you're alive. Let's celebrate, and you're my son again. And what's funny is he's he's preparing this whole speech about, you know, wanting to be a servant and everything. And the father interrupts it to call the servants to come to wait on him. Servants. Yeah. He's like, go get the ring. Go get yeah. the sandals. Go get the robe. He, uh, he starts telling, you're not the servant. These guys are the servants, and they're going to serve right. you. Right. I mean, it's the kingdom of God is completely upended. I, yeah. I, and I think, you know, honestly, Steve, the word kingdom, I think it's almost a misfortunate translation. Because I, I agree with you. We've, yeah. we've lost so much meaning as to what it is. I mean, I think it almost yeah. be better to call it the government of God mm-hmm. because we understand what that means. So yeah. the way God does business in this earth looks yeah. completely, completely antithetical. Yep. It, the, ju- the word, the, the meaning of justice is completely different. Yep. The the way that the way that you lead in the kingdom of God has nothing to do with power and nothing to do with ruling over people, but everything to do right. with serving them and lifting them up so uh-huh. that the the ones that are the greatest in the kingdom of God are the ones that come up under others and push them out in front of the spotlight and say, let the spotlight shine on them. Yeah. You know, yeah. I, I heard uh, I was reading Rachel Held Evans blog today and. She had a quote mm-hmm. on there that I just thought, man, that's so good. She was just, I don't, I don't even think she meant to say it as eloquently as she did in the context of the post. But <laughs> she said, you know, I'm convinced that the reason you build a platform is so that other people can share it with you. Mm-hmm. I thought, man, yeah, that's the, you and I never saw any of that in our church growth classes. 
Mm-mm. It was all about, you know, you God's giving you a vision for your church and you've got to go recruit people yep. to fulfill the vision that God gives you for your church. Mm-hmm. Whereas you read the New Testament model, it's all about equipping the saints to go do the work of the ministry. So you exactly. come under them and you say, gosh, let me help you develop that cool thing I see in you. Let me help you. Yep. Let me pull that out of you so that you can so that you can be successful, so that you can right. uh, be fulfilled and significant and meaningful. And I find my meaning in helping you find meaning. Yeah, yeah. And that leads to a maturing of the entire body. Exactly. You know, exactly. I've long argued that one of the biggest problems of the institutional church is that it keeps the the vast majority of the body in immaturity. Yes. It keeps us from growing. It keeps us from becoming all that God has created us to be. Because we're never allowed past a certain point. Yes, that's right. The The only acceptable departure from a church is if you become a pastor. Yeah. And that has to be you're departing to go to seminary to get a degree. You know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> not not even that you're going to start a church. but And even then, a lot of times, the churches are started as, you know, uh, offspring of the senior pastor of the home church or we're just going down the road to put up a movie screen so that we can project his sermons yeah, over right. to a group of 200 more people that can't fit into the sanctuary that's true that's the modern trend is you don't even appoint pastors of the new church you just yeah you just beam it from by satellite you just have to have guys that are able to pull down a, a screen to project the message <laughs> you know right. so you need a little taller guy that's a little stronger but other than that yes yeah, somebody who knows how to operate a projector and a computer. Yeah, yeah. Oh my goodness. But yeah, I agree with you that the this the notion that the the government governance of God is completely different and opposite of what we think of extends all the way to what we think his character should be. Yeah, that's right. And you know, I have no qualms with acknowledging that there are elements of scripture that seem to indicate certain things about the father. But again, that's got to be run through the lens of Jesus. It's got to be run through that filter. And if it contradicts what Jesus revealed, we have to, have to, have to acknowledge that there's something wrong with our understanding and let Jesus continue to define who the father is. But there's, you cannot look at Jesus and see someone who is just out for blood. Yeah, yeah. You, you can't see that at all. And you can't see, you know, Jesus never rejected anybody that came to him. And he extended love even to those who didn't come to him. Yeah. And, you know, yes, he had harsh words for people. But those people were the ones who said, I don't need your God because I know who God is better than you do. Yeah. Yeah. Never realizing that he was revealing to them the true God mm-hmm. and they were worshiping a false impression of a God. Mm. You know, it's, it's even, you know, when you, when you look at the words of Jesus in the sermon on the Mount, you know, mm-hmm. all of this stuff about love your enemies, pray for those who despitefully use you, turn the other cheek, all of that stuff. He goes on to say that by doing this, you'll be sons of your father who's in heaven. Yeah. That the whole way that you are known as children of God is to behave like God. And here's what it looks like to behave like God. And then he goes into the Sermon on the Mount. And it's like, Mm -hmm. when you stop and think about that, okay, Jesus is right there defining what God looks like. So am I going to take a sermon from Jesus where he gives me the definition of God Mm -hmm. and then Mm. completely 
rip it up to shreds and throw it away and go with something that somebody else said about God, whether it be anybody. It right. could be the Apostle Paul. It could be James. It could be John. Whoever. Am I going to take their words and somehow use them to undermine the one I right. call Lord? Right. Doesn't it completely? I mean, it's like Jesus said, don't call me Lord, Lord, and then don't do the things I say to do. Yeah. How can how can we you know, how can we continue to call Jesus Lord and somehow find a way around everything he taught, lived, and demonstrated? Yeah. That's that's mind boggling to me, Steve, how we can we yeah. can call Jesus Lord, we can say Jesus is the revelation of the Father, and we find a thousand ways to mm-hmm. undermine what Jesus revealed about the Father, and instead we go pull from the book of Joshua or yeah. you know, from Job or, or Psalms. Psalms, yeah, a, a thousand different places yeah. other than Jesus to prove that what Jesus said really wasn't true. Mm-hmm. It's craziness. It is. But I agree with what you said earlier that it it's a, a very unfortunate byproduct to this flat level of inspiration that we have somehow bought into that every word of the Bible is just as um, authoritative authoritative. Yeah. That's a good word for, and just as applicable as every other word Uh, that, that misses a huge part of what the Bible actually says. Because as you and I have argued from day one of this podcast, Hebrews one, is very clear in the fact that the revelation of God was not full in the Old Testament. Right, right. So regardless of what those guys wrote, we have to acknowledge that they did not fully understand who the Father was. And that means that they got some things wrong. Yeah. I mean, gee, you know, it's... The only reason this is so challenging for us, Steve, is because we've been so schooled to think otherwise. Right. But it's so abundantly obvious because Jesus himself continually comes against parts of the Old Testament. I mean, like, yeah. even the whole love your enemies thing. You right. know, you've got David praying in the Psalms, Lord, uh-huh. I, I hate those who hate you. Right. You know, <laughs> I mean, and we call that inspired. Lord, I hate those who hate you. I hate them with a bitter hatred. Yeah. It's like Jesus comes on and says, uh-uh, uh uh No, if you want yeah. to be like your father, you got to love your enemies. Yep. I mean, that's... I mean, there, yeah, there are numerous examples that we can draw in the Old Testament of people who misunderstood the character of God. The whole book of Ecclesiastes, in my opinion, is an exercise in missing the point. I mean, it's it's Solomon writing out of a sense of futility because he thought he had discovered something that wasn't true. He thought he had found an understanding that led him to a brick wall. And his life became very unfulfilling. And so he writes this this book, this song, saying life is hopeless, life is meaningless, uh, God's way up in heaven. I'm down here, so I'm just going to shut up. And yet he keeps on talking. <laughs> uh, you know, basically he says, who knows if there's any resurrection? Yeah. Who knows, you know, man, animal, whatever. All we know is they die, we bury them. Who, who knows <laughs> if their soul goes up or goes down? You know, you really don't know. 
And I mean, it's just all this hopelessness. And I'm sitting there going, okay, Paul may have said that all of this was inspired, but he must have meant something other than what we've made it mean. Yeah. Because this kind of hopelessness is not of the Father. You know, you read Job, and we've talked about this many times. Job had no clue what was going on. He thought God was out to get him. He yeah. demands an audience with God, ends up upsetting God in the process because he accuses God of all kinds of amazingly bad things. God asks him some rhetorical questions, but in the midst of it, Job is gone. Yep, God gave all this to me. God's taken it all away. Oh, and, you know, okay, so he's noble for saying, I'm still going to bless him. But that doesn't mean that he was right in his assessment as to who was taking stuff away. Yeah. We know from chapter one who took it away. And we also know that Jesus told us the thief steals, kills, and destroys. But I give life. Yeah. And abundant life at that. So, obviously, the father is all about giving. And you read the end of the book of, of Job, you find out, yeah, the father was all about giving still. Yeah. Because he gave it all back sevenfold. And so, you know, and like you, you gave a great example of David saying, I hate these people, you know, and, and we have these, what are called imprecatory Psalms. Yeah. Where David is praying just lavish judgment and vindication, uh, you know, massive destruction of his enemies. And Jesus comes along and his enemies are putting him on the cross and he says, Father, forgive them. He doesn't pray imprecatory Psalms against them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, probably the harshest thing Jesus ever said was that if somebody disrupts the faith of a little one, that it would be better if they'd never been born and or that a heavy stone had been you know, tied around their neck and they're thrown into the ocean. That's probably the harshest thing he ever said about somebody, and I think we can learn something from that. But the, the character, by and large, of what we see revealed is not, I want to see blood. Yeah, you know? yeah. Well, and even... <laughs> It, it, it's just bizarre to me how we even, you know, then people automatically jump to Revelation and they start pointing yes. out this vindictive, bloodlusting Jesus that's coming back to kick butt and take names. It's like, man, yeah. if that's what you get out of Revelation, <laughs> then he, th this completely demonstrates the problem to me. Because what we yeah. do is we take the not so obvious, i.e. Revelation, right. and completely upend <laughs> the abundantly obvious found in four Gospels. Yeah. Of who Jesus was in the flesh. Yeah. So we take this highly nuanced metaphor, uh -huh. all this metaphorical and apocalyptic <laughs> language, and we somehow use that to reinterpret who Jesus completely plainly revealed himself to be walking around in human skin. Yeah, Revelation becomes literal and the Gospels become metaphorical. Exactly, exactly. You know, so, when Jesus said, love your enemies, he really meant drop the bomb slowly. Exactly. You know, wait till, wait as long as you can before you shoot him. He really meant that the, the blood will come up to the horse's bridle. Yeah. You know? I mean, that's what, <laughs> yeah. I, that's what I hear people saying. I'm like, you know, maybe what we ought to do is interpret everything, period, yeah. through what we believe to be the incarnation of Jesus in yep. the Gospels. Can the, you imagine if we actually did that, Ray? Then all of a sudden you have to reinterpret everything. And and something yeah. you said before is our definitions, the definitions mm -hmm. of our words. Yeah. The very way we define our words has to change. Yeah. Because if we've defined holiness to be something other than yep. what Jesus made it out to be. Yep. If we've defined holiness to mean 
that God has to be separate from sinners when Jesus hung around with sinners. We either right. we either have to, you know, you've got a lot of Christians that are going to have to give up the incarnation. Uh-huh. <laughs> that aren't yeah. willing to do that. <laughs> right? Right? Yeah. I mean, you've got, and then when, when you've got um, the idea of forgiveness, meaning that God has to take out his anger on somebody else, and he's got to exact payment from somebody else, but right. then somehow he can let then you can off the hook. You. Yeah. Whoa. But but only if you accept it. Yeah, exactly. Otherwise, you're still not off the hook. It's like, how how effectual really was the atonement? Yeah. Because in the view of most Christians, in my opinion, it's pretty darn darn paltry. Yeah. You know, <laughs> it's pretty it's pretty lacking. I have this bizarre image in my mind. You know, we've talked before about the ludicrousness of a father who beats his son to death. And then says, come here, let me hold you. And we all go run into him because now he's not angry at us. And and yet I have this image of that same father after he's done that to his son. And he's holding us all lovingly because we recognize that he's no longer angry. One of our siblings says, I'm not so sure that that really did the trick. And the father puts us down for a second and says, excuse me. Punches his lights out and then takes us back on his lap again. It's crazy. I mean, I just... the. That whole notion of this bipolar father is scary to me because of the fact that so many people think that that's okay to believe that about God. Or, or even like, let's, let's take another thought. That's, that's a great, that's a great one right there. I mean, a great way to really vividly paint the picture for people to let them <laughs> see how ridiculous it is what we believe. Let's do another thought experiment. Okay. Imagine, imagine that, okay. God hates your guts, as what people would say. After after the fall, God completely hates your guts. Yeah. Jesus dies. Mm-hmm. Now God so loved the world. Mm-hmm. So he loves all of humanity mm-hmm. for the space of 50, 60, 70, 80 years. <laughs> right. And then, unless they happen to be born in a place that they can hear the gospel, and yep. unless they happen to be live in a family that actually uh, understands the gospel correctly... Uh-huh. Unless that happens, then after 70, 80 years, maybe 90 at best, he's going yeah. to turn back to hating them again. Yeah. It's completely bipolar. I wish he would make up his mind. I mean, it's like, it, does he have multiple personality syndrome? Right. You know, what's the deal? Well, that's the Trinity. Yeah. <laughs> God, the Godfather. <laughs> Jesus, good cop. And right. uh, I don't know where we go from there, but... <laughs> Yeah, the Holy Spirit just kind of drifts in and out. Uh, yeah, there, there's just so much about that that makes no sense. And yet, I guarantee you, you know, we're kind of chuckling about this, but I guarantee you there are people who would hear us say that and just be appalled. I would have been one of them a few years ago. Yeah, I probably would have been. I too. would have been appalled a few years ago. I'd have, I'd have turned this heretic podcast off and said, those guys are all going to hell. Yeah. You know? But when you stop and you actually... But it just doesn't make sense. Yeah. I mean, when you actually let yourself think... that That's the problem, Steve, is people mm-hmm. read scripture. They yeah. believe what they the interpretive lenses they've been handed to understand scripture through. And right. they never actually take the time to play it out in their minds as to what it would look like. Well, and a lot of people say if you play it out in your mind like that, then you're depending upon human reason and not upon the inspired scripture. But 
is our human reason not something that we were given by God? Exactly. Well, I mean, love the Lord the, the your God. The very God who says, come let us reason together. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Mind, yeah. You know? I mean, I don't think God expects us to check our logic at the door. I don't either. It's it's just bizarre, though, when you stop and you actually play out some of the scenarios that we've held to as biblical Christianity. Yeah. You, and you play them out to their absurd conclusion. It's just hard to it's hard to understand how we hold on to this stuff. Well, and the very concept of inspiration that we're talking about, the evangelical definition of inspiration, just if you play that out, it becomes ludicrous. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I like somebody wrote recently, and you and I have talked about this, why do we never hear sermons preached on the passage where Paul says, Bring me my cloak <laughs> and the scrolls? <laughs> I mean, if all scripture is inspired and all of it is good for our growth and edification, then they're holding out on us by not expositing that passage for us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, or like I like to say, does this mean that in the Old Testament when the prophet wrote, then the Lord said, did the Lord say those words? Then the Lord said? <laughs> is that inspired? Or is it the stuff in quotation marks that's inspired? Because it's kind of weird. There's that multiple personality disorder again. For God to say, then the Lord said, quotation mark, <laughs> and then he goes on to say something. Or, or you know, we've talked about before, but like Paul saying, you know, I don't really have a word from the Lord on this. <laughs> that's right. But it's actually the word of the Lord. But it's actually the word of the Lord that he's writing when he says, I don't have a word from the Lord on this. I mean. I can't believe I forgot that one because that's one of my favorites. I mean, how crazy is that? Well, and, and, you know, for centuries, people uh, believed certain things about astronomy and yeah. about the Earth and the solar system based on the Bible is the inspired Word of God, and it says this. Yeah. It says that the sun goes around the Earth, and so, yeah, and there are still people to this day who, because of that, believe in a geocentric Solar system, regardless of what science has taught us, man, they still believe that because the Bible says that the sun goes around the earth, that that's really what happens. And you know, on on one level, golly, you know, I respect some people for being so dedicated to trying yeah. to to try to try and serve God no matter what anything says. This is where we as Southerners insert bless their hearts, bless their darling hearts. <laughs> You know, on, 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 or this is what, this is what somebody I knew used to say. He would say, bless their darling hearts and stupid heads. That's what he would say. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, it's, it's mind boggling yeah. when you really play this stuff out. The craziness. I, one thing I was yeah. thinking about the other day, you know, talking about Jesus completely upending the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. I was thinking about, you know, the story of uh, Elijah. And how he called down fire and and how he, you know, had the bear maul the kids that called him bald, you know. Right. Don't get me wrong, I might be tempted to do that, you know, but Yeah, but, right. You know. But here here comes here comes James and John and they say to Jesus, We're going to be biblical. Jesus, Elijah, called down fire from uh-huh. heaven. He you know, he he did this. Is that what you want us to do now? Do you I mean here they are. They're trying to be good evangelicals. We're going to quote you some Bible and we're going to follow through with it. 
Mm-hmm. And Jesus actually turns around and says, you don't know what spirit you're of. Yeah. In other words, you are actually operating in an evil spirit right now. Now, my, Which begs the question, was Elijah? Exactly. Which it makes me wonder, okay, we got that story recorded in scripture. Yep. Does that, is that story in scripture, is it simply descriptive of what happened and yet not prescriptive? Mm. Well, obviously so, because Jesus is saying that that spirit is not the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Yeah. So all of a sudden, I mean, when you, when you stop and think about that, here you have one of the greatest prophets in the history of Israel. Mm-hmm. And you've got something recorded where he completely acted out of, a, I, I guess it would be a demonic spirit. Yeah. And Jesus just calls it that. Yeah. And yet we would, we would hail that action in evangelicalism. We would preach a sermon on that action as if it were a godly thing. As oh, if it was I've, something I've commended by God. Yeah, because as you know, in charismatic churches and Pentecostal churches, the pastor is equated to one of the prophets. Do touch my prophets, do, do my mm. prophets no harm. <laughs> right, right, exactly. Oh. And and I mean, I I've heard that. In fact, I not even just in Pentecostal churches, but I remember uh, the first church I ever served in after I got out of college. I was a music pastor, and we ended up having a major conflict with the senior pastor. Uh, and he was forced to resign, and it was just an ugly situation. But I remember he he had a staff meeting where he was basically berating the staff for even entertaining thoughts that he wasn't fit to be pastor. And I'm just raking us over the coal. There were four, three of us uh, on the staff besides him, three other pastors, and he was just gone at it. And he he said something that equated himself basically to Moses. Oh, wow. And I asked him, I said, are you really, are you really telling me that you're the equivalent of Moses here? Because I believe that was Jesus position. Wow. (laughs) It didn't go over very well. Oh, I'm sure it didn't. But I just, I, I remember just being appalled at that. I'm like, and then when I got into the Pentecostal church years later, and discovered that that was a common way of looking at this, the senior pastor was he was a prophet of God. And the way you treated the prophets in the Old Testament was how you were supposed to treat the pastor. And I just think, wait a minute, what about all this about, you know, the prophets being summed up in Jesus and, yeah. and Jesus being the last prophet, basically. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, Hebrews doesn't say that specifically, but that's kind of the idea, you know, that that that, that ministry of prophecy is over. Because that was all a foreshadowing. That was all a, a uh, pointing to Christ. And so for us to go back to that mentality of either Abraham, Moses, or a prophet, any one of those figures, and say that someone equates to that today, Jesus was all of that. Yeah, yeah. You know, he he summed up all of that. The priests, the prophets, Moses, Abraham, Adam, all of that was summed up in Jesus so that he is now the focus of our faith and of our adoration and our worship. Yeah. And none of that goes toward any other man. That's right. That's right. Well, even the idea, you know, you know, I've talked about this before, but even the idea of a pastor, there's only like one place in the new Testament where that Greek word for pastor even refers to a human being. And every other time it refers to Jesus First to Jesus. Yeah. You know, it's, it's amazing what we have built. Uh, 
which I, I have said for a long time, you know, Frank Viola and George Barna uh, did, released Pagan Christianity, and they talk about all the pagan influences on the church, the, the lectern and the sermon and all that. But I, I'm not even so concerned about the pagan influences as I am the Old Testament influences. Yeah, yeah. And to me, the whole system smacks of a tabernacle temple mentality of you know a priest and someone going between you and god you even look at the the roman catholic church the concept of a vicar yeah that that's a it's a representative of christ on the earth well we all are part of the body of christ that's what i thought there's there's no representative of christ christ was the representative of the father he's really the only vicar that we can talk about but you know and i think there's a I'm blanking on it right now, and our, some of our former or even current Catholic listeners are probably yelling it at the computer right now, but the, there's a term for the Pope that basically refers to that notion as well, that that he is the image of Christ on the earth. Mm, mm. Well, <laughs> no, he's not. Right. He's a he's, image of Christ on the earth, but he's yes, not the image of Christ on the earth. he's not the image of Christ. We all are the image of Christ. We're created in the image of God, and Christ was the image of God, and you know, it's just, it's amazing how much, again, that we totally gloss over everything that Jesus taught well, us. I think it goes back to, you know, we have created a religion out of Christianity that is yeah. a, what we think of, okay, it's the true religion that competes with all other religions and all other religions are found wanting in its presence. Right. That's how we've been taught yes, what Christianity exactly. is. And yeah. in my mind, what it was supposed to be was never a religion, but actually yeah. the critique and destruction of all religion. Mm-hmm. I mean, Jesus comes along and the first thing he does in the Sermon on the Mount with the Beatitudes, he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. In other words, blessed are you. And Brian Zahn bring this, brings this out in his book, Beauty Will Save the World, which is just really great. But he says, um, basically what Jesus is saying there is, blessed are you who aren't good at being spiritual. Yeah. yeah. Blessed are you who suck when it comes to being a spiritual person <laughs> who can't pray right, who can't read yeah. your Bible enough, who can't say the right, the right things and who always feels like that they just don't get it when it comes to having a relationship with God. Yeah. Blessed are you. Mm-hmm. I mean, he comes and he gets the the first miracle he ever performs. Instead of raising somebody from the dead, he takes the purity water pots that are used specifically for religious hand washing rituals before people ate and drank at right. a Jewish party. He takes them and completely defiles them by yeah. turning turn them into wine pots that people used to get drunk with. Yeah. I mean, Jesus, and he, he's bringing out the good wine so they can get drunk on the good wine instead. I mean, it's... Right. He completely upends the whole mm-hmm. religious specter yeah. and says no to all of it. I mean, it's like yeah. a decisive no. The rending of the of the veil when mm-hmm. it was torn in two from top to bottom, I think is uh-huh. God's huge pronouncement on religion. Yes. No, I am not that this is not that what you guys are doing, whatever religion it is, be it Hinduism, yep. Buddhism or Christianity, What you're doing is trying to rebuild the Tower of Babel. You're Mm -hmm. trying to make all of these human efforts to get to reach as far into heaven as you possibly can. And I'm pronouncing a curse on all of them and telling you that they are all found wanting. 
Exactly. And that this thing is simply about living your life with God. A lot of things started to really make sense to me, Ray, in terms of my journey once I realized that what I was part of was a religion. Mm. Mm. That what we have called Christianity, at least here in the West, is, as you said very accurately, it's a religion. And it really isn't different from any other religion out there. Sometimes it's more. It's actually more dangerous in many ways. Well, I think so, because it, it has... It has just enough truth in it to suck people in. Well, it, it, to me, it's like an inoculation. It gives you just enough of the uh-huh. virus to keep you from ever catching the real thing. Right. You know, it's right. like a flu That's shot. A good way to put it. It's yeah. just enough. It's just enough of the flu virus to go in you to make you feel like you're to to make your body think that you've actually got the real thing to keep you from yeah. ever actually catching the real thing. And yet, in this case, it's just enough of real life to keep you in a place of death. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's like the opposite of, I mean, it's the same process that you're describing, but instead of a flu virus, it's real life. Yeah. Yeah. That you're being inoculated against. And, you know, Paul's, Paul used a phrase and I don't even remember the context, so I'm not sure if this is what he meant by it, but I've used it many, many times out of that context a form of godliness, but denying its power. Yeah. There's a sense in which, you know, you and I were taught some truth. Not everything that we were taught was a lie. Absolutely. But in the context of that religious system, it becomes of no power. You know, I, I mean, I remember sitting in a church that you and I both are familiar with and realizing that the people in that church were being held in bondage to their illnesses, to their inadequacies, to their depression, anything that they were struggling with and they were coming to the church for help with, they were told they were being helped, but the help that they were being given was just perpetuating the bondage that they were in. Hmm. And they were even being told, you'll never be completely healed from this. You'll always struggle with this. You'll always have to battle this. And I just, the day that that hit me, and I actually stood up and said something that apparently just went over everybody's head, but I stood up and I read a passage of scripture that basically it was a passage from the Psalms that was talking about being set free from prison and and life being brought out of death. And I can't remember which psalm it was now, but I read this. I said, this is what God is saying to you, that you are free. Mm. You are healed. You don't have to struggle with these things any longer. And there were amens and pats on the back. And the next thing was an announcement about the next recovery meeting, you know. Mm. (laughs) And I, I just, I remember sitting down thinking, They didn't even understand what I just said. Hmm. People would line up to sign up for classes that only kept them in more bondage. Hmm. Hmm. And I I see Christianity as a whole as that kind of religion that talks about freedom, talks about life, talks about maturity. But like I said earlier, it keeps 99.9% of the body in a state of immaturity. It keeps them in a place of fear, 
And there's never really any true life that comes out of it. Because if it was, that system would be busted wide open. Well, you know, if it's uh, if it really was for freedom that Christ came to set us free, mm-hmm. and if we really got a hold of that, then there'd be a, there'd be a lot of uh, a lot of uh, unemployed clergymen, and there'd be yeah. a lot of you know there'd be a lot of uh, self help seminars and all these things that were unattended, um, because yeah. it seems like what we're constantly doing. And don't get me wrong, the body needs each other. We need each other. Yeah. There's things that I need from you and things you need from me that we're incomplete without each other. God's mm-hmm. designed it so that we're interdependent with each other. Right. But what I see in the body most of the time is not interdependence, but codependence. Codependence, yeah. Where you have a clergy that mm-hmm. people need 24-7 mm-hmm. to be on call. And that mm-hmm. clergy needs the people to need them to do them in order yeah. to feel like they're successful, like they're meaningful and like they're living a significant life because it wouldn't yeah. be enough just to work a secular job or to, you know, that somehow I have, I have to have people that need me in order to feel validated myself. And I understand, and you do too, Ray. Yeah, I understand that feeling. Sure. I, you know, it was interesting because I, I worked in two different churches out of college before I went to seminary. And in the first church, I was the music pastor, uh, minister music, whatever you want to call it. Choir director, as some people call it. <laughs> um, and, <laughs> Depends and, on how and big I your was, church is. That's the way exactly, they call it. Exactly <laughs> right. In the second church, I was the associate pastor. And it was a small church. There was a senior pastor and there was me. And we, I shared preaching responsibilities and counseling responsibilities and all kinds of stuff. Uh, but also handled the music. Um, I left there to move to Texas to work on my master's in theology at Dallas Theological Seminary. And when I went to Dallas, and I've probably told this story years ago on the podcast, when I went to Dallas, I, of course, resigned that position as associate pastor, and I took a, a, just to make some money, I took a position in a church as the second keyboardist in the band. There was a pianist who handled all the main keyboard stuff, and I basically was playing color keys, if you're familiar with that term. Um, You know, strings, organ, just other stuff to kind of fill in. So I wasn't even the band leader. I experienced such an identity crisis going from Pastor Steve to that keyboard guy. Yeah. And and I actually believe that a lot of that was, was what, caused my marriage to fall apart and everything because I didn't know what to do with that identity crisis. And I began to just scramble for any kind of affirmation and fulfillment I could find in life. Um, Religion did that to me. Yeah. Religion set me up for that fall. Yeah. Because it put me in a position where I had a title that I never should have had. And I don't mean me personally should have never had it. Nobody should have. (laughs) Mm. And gave me a sense of power and authority that only belonged to Jesus. Mm. But I was caused by the system to feel like I had that power. Mm. And the identity crisis that came out of that was really severe. It, it, 
and I kind of knew it while I was in it, but it was afterwards that I was able to really piece it together and understand what happened psychologically for me. And I've, you know, there have been a numerous pastors that I have talked to over the last four or five years, Ray, and you have as well, where we've described what we believe about the system and we've talked about what we believe about clergy, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And the response often is, I get that, I understand that, but what else am I going to do to support my family? Yeah, yeah. This is what I train to do. And I feel for these people because a lot of oh, those guys, absolutely. They've, they've put, you know, six to eight years. They may into, have student loans that they're paying off from seminary. Yeah, I mean, they've, they've spent six to eight years in secondary education. They've yeah. got multiple kids. They're the only yep. source of income. Yep. They've got a, a comfortable, you know, a, a parsonage that's paid for. A retirement plan. A if retirement plan, plan. Health mm-hmm. insurance for all yeah. their kids and for them. You know, I feel yeah. for those guys because they're saying to themselves, "Look, I'm going to go from that to working at a hardware store or working right. at a retail job, or you know, I yeah, I, my heart hurts for them because I, you know, just to be honest, in the efforts of full disclosure, when I left, when I left being assistant pastor, I was making like 200 bucks a month, so it wasn't exactly like yeah. I was rolling in the dough. <laughs> you know, I mean, I was, yeah, exactly. I was, uh, it, it was supplementary income, but it definitely wasn't yeah. my sole source. And, right. you know, I, I, even with me in yeah. such a, in so much of a smaller church and, and not near as dependent on the income, right. you know, I mean, it was hard for me. Um, so I can't even imagine being yeah. some of these guys that have put so many years of their lives and, and, right. uh, their family, you know, depends mm-hmm. on that. I can't imagine being in that position, but simultaneously it's like, gosh, do you, do you continue whatever it is? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Whether it's, you know, uh, like in the situation we're talking about with a pastor or something like that, whatever the situation is, do you continue to do something mm-hmm. that violates your conscience? Right. Simply because you, you can't think of what else to do. And that's a question that each person has to wrestle yeah. through. And when I say that, that's not a, yeah. that's not just it's a not rhetorical a question or a judgment. Right. I mean, that's, you know, yeah. I think we all have struggled with this at some time or another. Yeah. You know, what do you, you know, and, and I mean, we have, we, we probably have pastors that listen to this podcast. This is in right. no way condemning towards anyone. No. You know, you're, you're tuning into our journey right now and. For some of you guys, y'all y'all might have just joined us in the last month or the last six months, and maybe you've mm-hmm. been listening to a lot of interviews or something like that and haven't heard a lot of this kind of conversation. Right. Um, and so some people are probably shocked right now, like, golly, I didn't know these guys thought these things or yeah. or whatever. You know, this is a journey for us. We're in the midst of our mm-hmm. journey, and we're just sharing our journey with you. That's mm-hmm. in no way condemning anyone who is in any situation. You know, you yeah. gotta, you gotta follow God. You can't follow Stephen Ray and right. what we say and what our journeys are. You gotta follow God and whatever he's telling you to do. Yeah. But so many times it just seems like we follow God as far as, um, we follow God up until the point that it's going to cost us something. Yeah. And the minute it's going to cost us something. Mm-hmm. then we begin to back down a little bit. I mean, to me, I think this is part of, and I hope I'm not beating a dead horse here, but I think this is part of the 
the um so much of the pushback on nonviolence mm-hmm. is because you can talk about you can talk about a lot of ethereal concepts like atonement, right. like hell, right. like all of these other things, and you can believe whatever you want to, and it doesn't really affect your day to day work a day life. Yeah. When you start talking about nonviolence, then all of these practical questions rise to the surface. Mm-hmm. And you start going, now this has real implications for my life. And so the yeah. minute you can see that there's some real possibly detrimental or negative implications on your life, mm-hmm. you know, the human tendency is to draw back. Right. And is to and is to establish some safe boundaries that make me feel, you know, comfortable. Yeah. And uh, you know, I think for you and me both we just want to encourage our listeners just like us, whatever your boundaries are, um, we don't need to inform those boundaries necessarily. Right. We don't, we don't need anybody to do what we're saying to do, but just make sure those boundaries don't defy, don't defile your conscience. Yeah. And be willing to push those boundaries, be willing to, or maybe I shouldn't say be willing to push them, be willing to challenge them. Yeah. Be willing to question them because a big part of, you know, we use the metaphor of being beyond the box. Um, and when we first started, we started with a, a couple episodes defining what the box was. Uh, it's If you guys haven't gone back and listened to those, you might want to. In fact, I should go back and hear what, how we define the box. <laughs> I'd be but, curious uh, to hear that episode yeah. myself. But, you know, here's the thing. It's not just that we're outside the box. It's that we went outside our comfort zone. Yeah, yeah. And I think you you have to reach a point in any faith journey where you're willing to go beyond your comfort zone. A lot of what Jesus challenged his listeners with was their comfort zone. Yeah. Like for example, when the, you know, he's asked the question, who's my neighbor? Nobody, nobody in his audience was comfortable being near a Samaritan. Yeah. Nobody. Nobody would have moved into that neighborhood. Uh-uh. No way. And he goes right to that comfort zone and he says, who's your neighbor? It's the guy that you think is less than human. It's the guy who disagrees with you theologically. Yeah. The guy that you're sure is wrong and destined for hell. He doesn't even worship in the right place, doesn't worship in the right way, doesn't use the right kind of language, doesn't purify himself the way he's supposed to. And he gets beat up and left for dead on the road. What do you do? You go and help him. Yeah. Yeah. You know, actually, I, I... saying the Samaritan got beat up. It was the Jewish guy that got beat up. It was the Samaritan that helped him. Yeah. But but no nobody was comfortable with that boundary being crossed. Or or even Jesus saying, you're looking at the Pharisees and saying, okay, you guys that have the Old Testament memorized and your mm-hmm. theology all in order, let me tell you something. The prostitutes and tax gatherers are entering the kingdom of heaven ahead of <laughs> ahead you. Ahead of you. Yep. They are forcing their way into the line right in front of you. Right. I mean, what the heck do you do with that? Exactly. And, you know, here's the interesting thing. I, I just had a thought as, as I was realizing that I was reversing Jew and Samaritan in the story. Here's the interesting thing is, in Jesus' story, that Jewish guy doesn't wake up in the hospital, find out that a Samaritan helped him, and freak out about it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. He doesn't go, oh, my goodness, I, I can't believe a Samaritan actually touched me. I can't believe no, I, I don't I don't want to be helped by any Samaritan. Get me out of here. I'm gonna take care of myself. That that doesn't factor into the story. I bet you, even though I realize it's just a story, just a parable, if that were to actually happen, 
that Jewish guy is going to wake up with a much greater respect yeah. for that Samaritan and a realization that, oh, maybe I've misjudged this guy. Yeah. Maybe I've misjudged these dogs. I'll tell you, I'll tell you what it reminds me of is, uh, I, I know we've talked about this on the podcast before, and I put it on my Facebook a couple of times, I think, over the last year or so, but um, this project in uh, in Israel slash Palestine, where there's these people, both on the Israeli side and the Palestinian side, who have lost loved ones in the battle between the Palestinians yes. and Israelis. And yep. they've decided that the way they would transcend that is they would donate blood to each other. Mm. They would donate blood to the hurt victims and the people from each community yep. because their idea was it's going to be a lot harder for me to hate someone who's got my blood flowing through their veins. No kidding. Yeah. I mean, yeah. to me, that's that's where we've got to get to mm-hmm. is where we see, you know, when I look at you, I see an icon of God. I see that. I see an image of God. I see a, mm-hmm. I see a God image bearer. Yeah. I see a brother. I see a sister. And it yep. doesn't matter if you believe in Krishna or Vashti or right. Buddha or whatever, but I yeah. see someone who was, who was made in the image of God and who is, you know, who is like me. Mm-hmm. And it's a lot harder to kill someone when you see them that way than it is when you demonize them with your propaganda and rhetoric like we do on yeah. a daily basis. You know, it's interesting you say that because there's a, a legend uh, from World War II. I think it was World War II. And I don't know if this is a true story or not, but supposedly there was a, a situation in which opposing forces were, were lined up against each other or they were in trenches, but... Uh, you know, basically there was a stand down or, or standoff, I should say, um, on Christmas Day. And one soldier stepped out of his trench and began to sing a Christmas carol. Have you heard this story? Uh-huh. Yeah. And the next thing you know, both sides are singing the same Christmas carol. My question is, what happened when that ended? Yeah, and I think for the I think for the entire day of Christmas they had a ceasefire and actually had had like served each other drinks and yeah. the whole enchilada. And it, and then they went they back in their trenches. Well, I, I doubt that. But. <laughs> that was the Spanish American War. <laughs> Spanish <that's right. laughs> Mexican American War. Um, it was yeah. the Alamo or something. And <laughs> remember the enchilada. But then December twenty sixth uh, comes around, and that's my question: is we never talk about that, but. I guess these guys went back in the trenches and started firing at each other again. And that's what's how really you, bizarre. <laughs> how do you do that? Yeah, yeah. How do you do that? But I, I think, you know, what, again, getting back to this notion of the comfort zone, a lot of what Jesus is asking us to do is to recognize that what we think is comfortable is not life-giving at all. But what he calls us to do while it feels outside our comfort zone, is actually where life is found. You know, when Jesus says, and, and he, he illustrates that whole upside-down government thing, that the one who wants to lead should serve, and you shouldn't exercise authority over each other, but you should serve one another and love one another. And when he's talking about this stuff, he's saying, you know, you think you're giving up something. This is the great paradox, I think, of 
of Christianity, true Christianity. You think you're giving up something in order to participate, and yet you end up gaining. Yeah. You know, he says, what does it profit a man if he loses... Uh, oh, Gains the gosh, world, I can't believe loses I'm, his Thank soul. you. Thank you. I can't believe I'm <laughs> blanking on that. What, what What's it profit a man if he... Uh, 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 yeah. If he gains the world and loses his soul. We think in our life, well, if you gain the world, you know, at least you got resources and you got blah, blah, blah. And he says, no, but it's the soul that matters. Yeah. So we think then, and in fact, he, he says at one point, if you give up relationships, family, whatever, if you're willing to leave that behind for me, you'll reap that as much as a hundredfold, even in this own lifetime. Yeah, yeah. In other words, you're not going to be losing. But but the the upside-down kingdom, the upside-down government, looks like a loss. It looks like a surrender. Jesus going to the cross looked like the battle was lost. Yeah. And in, and yet it was the greatest Trojan horse ever. Mm-hmm. Because it brought true victory. It brought true life. And so for those who are, are you know, feeling like, well, I'm not comfortable going that far with it, challenge yourself to reach into that that uncomfortable zone. And imagine, you know, if if it's something that you really believe is right, but it feels uncomfortable, go for it. Because it may turn out to be the greatest blessing ever. Uh, part, of, part of this whole boundary thing, pushing the boundary for me, that lately that I've been thinking about, I know uh, Peter Rollins talks about, um, he talks about the death of God and the mm-hmm. idea that your God might have to die for you to find the true God. That, exactly. That your Christianity... Your, yep. your Christianity might have to be found to be a false religion and mm-hmm. your God mm-hmm. might have to be found to be dead. He, he talks about Christian atheism, you know? Yeah. You, you might actually have to become an atheist in order to become a Christian. Which is exactly now full circle to where we started this because we were talking about a holy God and a just God and we define those in certain ways that then prohibit that God from being the very loving God that he reveals himself to be in Jesus. Exactly, exactly. So are we willing to redefine our God? See, that that's that's where it gets to, Steve, is that our God might have to die for yeah. the true God to emerge. We might have to be willing to let our definition of holiness die in order yeah. to find out truly what holiness is. We might right. We might have to... We might have to give up on our definition of love and atonement and hell and all of these things mm-hmm. to actually discover what they actually are. Because for you and me, I think that's been, you know, you, you said a long time ago, and you've said it multiple times on the podcast, that he who defines the terms wins, you know? Right. And, and I think that's a lot of our problem is that we talk about the same things. All mm-hmm. of us in the body of Christ are using the same terminologies. Right, but what one person means by God and what I mean yeah. by God can be totally different things. Right. By what one person means when they say the word Jesus, like mm-hmm. perfect example, I think of you know Mark Driscoll's description of Jesus a few years ago, where he said that his Jesus was a prize-fighting, oh, yeah. uh, tattooed warrior who oh, came with a sword and a commitment to make somebody bleed. Well, mm. in that case, if that's what he thinks that Mark Driscoll's Jesus and my Jesus are not the same person. Yeah. So 
you know, we, I think in this whole pushing the boundary conversation, we've, mm-hmm. and I, and I only think it can be the Holy Spirit who quickens us to even know that our definition of God can be found wanting. Right. That, Absolutely. It has to come from the Holy Spirit. But when we get those inklings, mm-hmm. you know, we've got to follow the white rabbit. Yeah. We've got to be willing to go, okay, I don't understand this kicks yeah. against everything I've ever been taught, yeah. but I got to follow the white rabbit and I got to take the red pill and I right. got to decide just how deep this rabbit hole goes. Yeah. And you know, I, I don't know if people have said this about us directly here at beyond the box, but I know in general, people like us often are accused of recreating God in our image. Yeah. Yeah. That we've, we've exchanged the true God for somebody that we've manufactured. And I would argue it's exactly the opposite that we have chosen to finally let go of our manufactured God, yeah, our yeah. enlightenment God, our Augustinian God, yeah. our, our Dante God, our modernist God, our modernist God. And we have chosen to pursue the Jesus God, the one who's revealed through Jesus. And do we have it correct? I doubt it. And and that's the thing, Steve, <laughs> is it's like, you, you know, this is a continually, a continually yeah. perpetual process that we that's, are having to continue to ask ourselves these questions all the time because our image of God is being refined. That's what a relationship is. Exactly. Exactly. You know, I, I, I've had understandings of who I think Rayburn is that I've had to adjust over the years as I've gotten to know you better. Yeah, yeah. And you can rest assured all of them have been adjusted for the better. <laughs> <laughs> well, and even part of, like, with with you saying that, Steve, mm-hmm. I think that we all have interpreted um, our relationships with, like, for instance, for a long time, I'm sure that I I viewed you through the filter of other people that I had known. Right. And so, you know, when, when maybe you didn't, uh, we, you know, I've talked about this before when maybe you didn't meet an expectation that I had, I would Mm -hmm. just automatically interpret that through maybe a bad experience I'd had with someone else that had disappointed me. And, oh, that must mean that, you know, that must mean that he's, uh, tuning me out or, you know, Mm -hmm. whatever. And so. I think we do the same things with God. We, you know, yeah. it's this whole thing with like our father, our mother, you know, mm-hmm. uh, pastors that we've had. We begin to view God through the lens of who those people are. Right. And that's got to die too. Which is precisely one of the problems that we have to be sensitive to in the lives of people. Because, you know, I remember at one point thinking, we always talk about God as father. And Jesus revealed him as father. And it's obviously a significant metaphor. But how do you explain God, how do you reveal God to someone who either doesn't have a father or has a very negative image of a father? Yeah, yeah. The girl who's been abused by her earthly father, Mm -hmm. how can she then relax in the arms of a heavenly father when everything about father to her is negative? Exactly, exactly. The person who grew up in a single mother home who didn't have a father 
how can they relate to God as father when they don't even know what a father is? Yeah, yeah, that's right. I learned so much about God as father when I became a father. Yeah. And suddenly my whole view of God became very different. Yeah, very much. Because now not only did I have a father, but now I was a father. Yeah. And I began to look at my children and go, wow, is this how God looks at me? Yeah. yeah. In fact, one topic that I would like to chat sometime about on the podcast, one of our listeners has requested that we talk about how our changes in our view of God has affected our change, our parenting. Mm. And you and I are both relatively new to parenting. Yeah. Um, I, as of the time that we're recording this podcast, it is now my eighth anniversary to of marriage to my beautiful wife, Christy. Congratulations, Steve Cincinnati. Thank you. That means uh, because I adopted her son, uh, I became his stepdad when we first got married and adopted him later on. Uh, I've only been a dad for eight years, even though I have a 19-year-old. Um, even more significantly, we adopted our soon-to-be six-year-old daughter just four years ago, less than four years ago. Um, that, having a, at that time, one-and-a-half, two-year-old daughter, uh, taught me much, much more about fatherhood. So I'm still relatively new to it. You're fairly new to it. Your kids are quite young. Yeah. Uh, it it has had a significant impact on my journey spiritually. Yeah, definitely. And my journey spiritually has had a significant impact on my parenting. Mm. I am doing things and saying things and acting in ways with my daughter now that I never did with my son at first. Yeah. Because when I first became Dylan's dad, when I first became his stepdad, I had a particular image of God in my head. And a lot of what I said and did to and for Dylan was driven by that image of God. Mm, mm. Now I have a much different image of God in my head. Mm. And so I'm parenting Hannah a lot differently than I ever parented Dylan. Mm. And I remember actually a time not too long ago it may already be a couple years now but i remember a time where i actually apologized to dylan mm. for mistakes that i made in those first few years because i said i thought i was doing the right thing mm. i thought that i understood what god wanted me to be like as a dad and then i realized that i was basing that on a different god mm. wow Wow. And the more I learn about God, the more loving I've become as a father. And the more I learn about God, the more forgiving and the more merciful I am trying to be as a father. And, you know, vice versa, too, the more it's like I'm, I'm thinking with my kids, the mm -hmm. more I'm running around and playing and having fun and you know, intentionally getting off my butt and making myself right. do fun things when I don't want to, yeah. or, you know, um, sacrificing things that, you know, are, are really sacrifices, but doing it because mm -hmm. I realize it's going to be good for my kids. Right. The more I do those things simultaneously, the more I grow in, oh my gosh, if uh -huh. I being evil know how to give good gifts right. to my children. 
how yeah, much how more? much more so like i i think about the way i feel for my boys and i yeah. mean i look at my boys and i'm telling you my heart just melts when i look at yeah. my boys i mean yeah. we had one of our sons our youngest he's two years old and he uh, he um didn't want to eat his dinner tonight and you know we're we're pretty strict with that just because you know if you if you don't eat your dinner you don't get to have dessert or snacks or whatever mm-hmm. so you got to eat at least you know so many bites or whatever well he right. didn't do that and he went to bed and he kept getting up and kept getting up and <laughs> he would say things and totally disobeying us but yeah, I couldn't be mad at the kid. I would just, uh, it was everything I could do to keep the smile off my face. Right. And so he eventually ends up sitting on the couch beside me and we, we compromised a little bit and we said, okay, uh-huh. you don't have to eat your supper, but we're, we made him eat something really healthy. You have to eat carrot slices or something like that. <laughs> and so he's sitting on the couch eating his little carrot slices. And I'm telling you, my heart was just melting looking at this kid. Yeah, There he is in the middle of you know, define bedtime and going against right. the rules. And there is nothing in me that felt any kind of animosity at any right. point about that. Right. And he got his carrots everywhere and hardly ate any of them and basically just used it as an excuse to get 30 minutes extra of being up. <laughs> but there was nothing in me at all yeah. that was mad at that kid. As a matter of fact, as I was putting him to bed, I was having to basically contort my face to keep from laughing about the situation. (laughs) And I think to myself, I'm like, there's so many times when I've thought God was so pissed off at me. Yeah. There's so many times when I've thought God was just ticked and and didn't want to hear from me. And, you know, was like, you, you talk to me, son, kind of like you talk to me when you clean your room, you know, when you get it right, you come back and talk to me. Mm-hmm. And the more I've been a parent, the more I've learned that's not yeah. at all who God is. Because if I, if I'm like this and yeah. I'm just, you know, skin and bones, right? how much more is the yeah. source of all fatherhood? How much more does yeah. he feel that for me? See, that's the kind of stuff I, you know, I, you talked about, you come back and talk to me when you get it right. That That was the kind of dad I started out being. You know, I would tell him, you got to clean up your act. You go to your room until you're ready to talk to me nicely. Yeah. You know, and now I wish. Yeah. Yeah. All I can do is apologize to him now. That's it, man. But, you know, I now when Hannah's acting up, all I want to do is hold her until she calms down. Yeah. You know, I I don't want to pull away from her. I want to get closer to her. Yeah. Because that's really what she needs. That's all Dylan ever needed. Yeah. was just for me to accept him. For me to love him. Yeah. And I honestly believe, I, I think you're absolutely right in quoting the words of Jesus, that, you know, however we as as parents feel toward our kids, God's not different. He's, He's better. better. <laughs> He doesn't oh, treat no. us differently than we as parents treat our kids. He treats us better. That's it, man. That's it. So, you know, we contort our faces to keep from laughing at the situation. He just lets it out. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know? He just has the he big old belly laugh to go with it. He rejoices yeah. over us with singing, with, with laughter. Singing. Yeah. I mean, my gosh. Come on. 
and that's that's not the spirit of a father who beats up his own children. You know, I I just I cannot, and I know people still think this is heresy. I'm sorry, I just can no longer accept the notion that God beat up Jesus, and I no yeah. longer can accept the notion that God torments people in hell. You know, you know what I think, Steve. It's like just while we're using our kids. When I come home from work at night, when I open mm-hmm. the door and my boys mm-hmm. are sitting there, their faces light up. Ah, uh-huh. isn't that awesome? And there is nothing, nothing as a father that does to me what that does. Yep. And I think to myself, thank God that their faces light up when I walk in a room. Yeah. And I'm like, that's how I want to be in the presence of God. Yeah. I don't, I'm... I wish I could say, I started to say, I'm done with, with being that way in the presence of God where I don't, you know, where I don't light up because I'm afraid right. I'm going to get it. I wish I could say I was completely there. I'm not, but, yeah. I'm, but I'm on my way, I'm man. Yeah. I'm on my way. And I feel like the father that when, that in his presence, we mm-hmm. shouldn't have this sense of. Oh my gosh, we've got to get it just right, or right. else we're going to quote unquote grieve the Holy Spirit. Yep. Or yep. that we've got to get it right, or God's going to be really angry and an Ananias and Sapphira moment might happen. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that God wants to, He wants to so overwhelm us with His goodness and His love mm-hmm. that when we sense His presence, it doesn't come to us as a fearful, judgmental frown. Right. But it comes to us as this warm embrace. Mm-hmm. As this kind of, you know, it reminds me of what, the, what it talked about, the anointing uh, in the Old Testament and how they would pour, mm-hmm. the, pour the warm oil over mm-hmm. them. And it mm-hmm. said it would run down their faces and drop down mm-hmm. their beard. One of the Psalms talks, really describes it beautifully as if it's just this, wonderful sensation. Yeah. And I think that's how it's supposed to be with the father. I, I'll i interject this. We had a commenter and, you know, let me just preface it by saying that everybody is welcome to disagree, is yeah. welcome to put in your two cents worth. Please, this is a community. Mm-hmm. You're still welcome. Even, even if we disagree with you at the end of the day, you're still welcome. Right. But we had a commenter just today who was commenting about a previous episode mm-hmm. and he was just really ticked off. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't know that he'd actually listen to the episode. I think he'd probably just Googled. It, yeah, I, I um, was going to say, I'd, I'd have to look at the, the server stats, but I had the impression as well that they came from a Google search for uh, yeah, Michael Harden's name. I, I think it was just Google and Michael Harden, but he yeah. was just absolutely ticked that we would talk about God as being, Jesus as being so warm and loving and that we wouldn't talk about hell and judgment. And he was Mm -hmm. just absolutely ticked and just, you know, what kind of heresy place is this that you harbor these kind of individuals? (laughs) And, you know, I think to myself, if that's the worst thing we're ever known for, Mm -hmm. so be it. (laughs) That's right. Yeah, I'd much rather be uh, criticized for being too generous and loving. When I get to heaven, if I'm completely wrong, mm-hmm. then I'll go ahead and hear the words, Rayburn, 
you made me out to be too loving and too kind. I'll go ahead and hear yeah. those words because I'd way rather risk that yeah. than to risk thinking that I made God out to be an ogre when he's as mm-hmm. we describe he is in Jesus. Well, and you said something really cool when you were talking about walking in the door and your kids' faces lighting up. And then you went on to talk about us lighting up in God's presence. But I'm struck by what that did to you. Yeah, yeah. And this is something that mm. I think we have largely ignored in the religion of Christianity. Mm. Is we've forgotten that God has feelings too. Yeah. And he's not the unmoved in, mover. <laughs> no, he's not. And when we light up in his presence... It warms his heart. Yeah, yeah. It it absolutely does him good, and he is a wow. father who, I mean, when we we quote verses like you mentioned about singing and dancing and all that, and yet somehow I know I was always brought up to believe in a God who was just very stoic. Yeah. Very sort of the um, the the stereotypical dad of maybe. A hundred years ago. Yeah, yeah. Very reserved, very distant, never hugs, never cries, never says I love you. Yeah. Just, you know, he provides, shows his love in those other ways, but, you know, you never see him kiss his wife. Uh, uh, apparently, since they have kids, they do get intimate at some point, but it's always <laughs> in private, you know. Uh, unless the kids are all adopted, I guess. But, <laughs> um, but you know what I'm talking about. That sort of stereotype of, of a very reserved father. Yeah. And and I think we have a father who is anything but reserved. Absolutely. I think we have a father who who loves to be with us, who loves to have us around, who delights in us discovering things about him or discovering things about ourselves. You know, I I love one of the things I love about having a young child like Hannah is watching her learn things, watching her discover things around her, her world or, or about herself, you know? And I just, I watch this and there are times when she'll be discovering something and Christy or I will see it and we'll get the other's attention quietly. Like, look, look, look what she's doing, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. And it's just, I just beam over that, you know? Mm-hmm. I just watch her with delight, and I think, that's that's what my father does. Yeah, yeah. He watches me with delight. Mm. He takes joy when he sees me growing, when he sees me understand something that I never understood before, when he sees me overcome a hurdle that I've wrestled with before. Mm. You know, he he rejoices over that. When Hannah does something that she's not been able to do before, I'm cheering her on. Yeah. Like, yes, that's my girl. You know, God's doing mm. the same thing with me. Yes, that's my boy. Mm. You know, we've got to we've got to get God. Not we're not creating God in our image, but we're saying, hey, if we are the image of God, yeah, exactly. Then this is what God must be like. Mm. And there, it's a God who's very personal. Very relational, very emotional, mm. very full of life. You know what it reminds me vibrant. of, Steve, is when you just said that. It's like that scripture that says, we behold the glory of the Lord as in a mirror. Mm-hmm. So if we want mm. to behold the glory of the Lord, yeah, we look in the mirror and we say, okay, like you said before, he's not different, he's better. We yeah. look at ourselves as image bearers of God. We look right. at our behavior and how we feel, mm-hmm. and we amplify that times a gazillion. Yeah. And we barely start to scratch the surface of yeah. how much more loving he is. 
Mm-hmm. And you know, like you said, when you when I walk in that door and I and and my boys light up, I light up fifty thousand times more than they do. Yeah, because exactly. to them, you know, to them, their delight is all right. Dad's home. We know we're going to have fun. We're going to play. We're going to, mm-hmm. you know, we're probably going to get some horseback rides. You know, <laughs> yep. all these kinds of piggyback rides. Whatever. We're going to get all these kinds of things. I light up because I mm-hmm. simply get to be in their presence. Yeah. I don't light up because because I think okay now I get to have them do chores and I get to right get to finally get somebody to make my bed and to clean finally my somebody to do things for me yeah <laughs> I, that never enters my mind I simply right. light up because they're in my presence and they're enjoying mm-hmm. themselves in my presence yep nothing that I told my wife yesterday we we're we're building this big playground thing for them and um we're all putting it together and they're outside playing with us and. They were fighting part of the day yesterday over toys and things like that. And then there was a couple hours there where they were right there with us and they were playing in the dirt with their dump trucks and everything. And they were playing mm-hmm. together and getting along and having such a good time. And I was just telling my wife, I'm like, this is just perfect. Yeah. We just are getting to enjoy just being in their presence and just yep. listening to them play mm-hmm. was some of the best, I mean, I couldn't ask for better times than that. Just yeah. to simply be in their presence and watch them enjoy each other mm-hmm. was, was all my heart needed. Yeah. How much yeah. more, mm. how much more does the father want that for us? God, That's right. we keep coming back to the same thing, Steve, but I don't know that there is anything else. You know, I know, I, and and it really all has to do with us being willing to to redefine these terms and redefine who God is according to what He has shown us. Richard Beck said on the first of the three series of podcasts we did with him, he said, "You know, I really think that every theological conversation simply comes down to love and fear." Period. Yeah, and I think that's why we keep that's why we keep going around this corner is because. This is really the conversation, Steve. Everything else yep. is just on the periphery of this. Yeah. It really comes down to, is it love or is it fear? Right. And do you believe that God loves you or are you afraid of him? <laughs> yep. That's it. And and you really can't have it both ways. You can't walk in because both. Because if my children are afraid of me, they don't believe I love them. And they're not going to be in your presence. No. They're not going to want to be near me. Right. And it, if... But, you know, vice versa, if they really understand how much I love them, they're not going to fear me. Exactly. Exactly. They're not going to, you know, we, we had, uh, some of our long-term listeners would know, uh, my wife and I had had two other foster daughters for about six months, eight months, I guess. And, uh, a couple of years ago, and it was a very challenging situation for us. But those two girls had already been, even though they were quite young, had already been in four other foster homes before they came to us. And everything about them was fear. Mm. Mm. And they they were fearful of getting close to us. They were fearful of letting us love them. And they didn't even know how to begin to let us love them because they were so afraid. Mm. And it colored everything about our relationship. Mm. And while perfect love casts out fear, uh, 
human love is not always capable of overcoming human fear. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we tried our best, but it, it was just, uh, such a challenge to see those walls mm. and to see how destroyed their young spirits were. Mm. And unfortunately there are a lot of people spiritually like that yeah. who have just been beat down by religion been told so much negative about God that they really believe that that they are not worth anything. Yeah, yeah. And that's exact opposite of what God wants us to know about ourselves. Right. You know, and, and Christianity has found all kinds of subtle ways of undermining those messages. You know, the the whole you talked about the sovereignty of God and the whole reform tradition is centered around beating people over the head with the notion that we are just worms. Yeah. We're absolutely worthless. And there's no sense in which we maintain the image of God within us. Yeah. Yeah. The the way that it's expressed in reformed theology. And that makes me sad. Yeah. You know, the the fact that people always have to clarify, well, I'm a sinner. I'm an evil person. Yeah. There's nothing good in me. Nothing at all. Uh, in fact, I I just read recently, I can't remember where it was or even what the whole context was. Maybe you've read it too and, and know what I'm talking about. But somebody who was saying that even all of the good things that we do in worshiping God are filthy rags. <laughs> wow. And I thought, what depressing. a twist. Yeah, and what a twisted notion of that Old Testament passage hmm. where God was saying to them at that time, your attempts to find favor with me because it isn't based in love and mercy are like filthy rags mm, to me. Mm. But in, in no sense are we on this side of the cross worshiping a, a God in in futility where our worship is filthy rags. I mean, it's almost like I imagine, Steve, we're coming up on Father's Day as we record this. Yeah. This coming Sunday. And I just imagine, you know, my two and three-year-old last Father's Day um, my wife had them finger paint a couple of pictures each oh. and we framed them. And, and, uh, that was my first father's day gift. Yeah. And you know, when I look at those, those to some outsiders might be filthy pictures, right? It's just a bunch of paint strewn all over the place. Cause uh-huh. at that time they were one and two. Right. And it's just a bunch of paint strewn all over the place, man. I treasure those pictures. Oh Yeah. Because they were made, they were doing that for me, even if they half didn't know it. Right. They were still doing it for me. Mm-hmm. And I think to myself, that's how the father is. Yeah. It's not that way that religion has twisted that scripture about our righteousness is as filthy rags. Yeah. He looks at the, at the widow's might, that one little thing that we're dropping in the box. Mm-hmm. And he says, that's more than all the religion junk. Yep. All the all the sacrifices and offerings that you can give me, you mm. giving me that one heartfelt expression of love is yeah. more than all that put together. Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, happy second Father's Day coming up, Ray. Hey, thank you, brother. I'm I'm looking forward to it. Mm. I, I'm I'm a blessed man, I have to say. Yeah, yeah, we both are. Mm. Mm-hmm. And thank you again to our listeners just for being a part of this community. Um, 
and I know there's a lot of you out there that don't ever comment or participate, and that's fine. You don't have to. Uh, but if you'd like to, feel free to stop by our Facebook page if you're on Facebook, uh, facebook.com slash beyond the box. Um, you can also tweet us if you want to, uh, twitter.com slash BTB podcast, short for Beyond the Box podcast. Uh, you can email us at beyond the box at beyond the box podcast.com. Visit our website, beyondtheboxpodcast.com. Uh, you can catch us on iTunes by searching for Beyond the Box and ignoring anything that's on the uh, Home and Garden channel. <laughs> uh, or whatever it is. There's something else out there. I forget. I think it is. Home and Garden? I think it is yeah. HDTV, yeah. <laughs> um, and you can also call us if you want to and leave us a voice message. Uh, we don't answer the phone directly, uh, but you can certainly leave a voice message for us. Uh, that phone number, Ray, what is that? 626-24-NO-BOX. That is 626-246-6269. Call now. Operators are standing by. And obviously for our international <laughs> listeners, that's a U.S. phone number. So whatever uh, country code you need to put in front of that to get out of your country's phone system, uh, you'll need to add that to the beginning of it. Um we uh we just appreciate all of you being along with us on this journey. Absolutely. Uh, Ray, how long have we been doing this? Are we done four years I now? I think we're I think we're four years. I think in July. Coming up on four years in I think July. July's July four 8th, years. Yeah. I think, yeah. Four years, wow. man. Started so we out, took a lot of we took a lot of downtime in twenty ten. We started out with uh, uh uh two sing star mics from a PlayStation that we rigged <laughs> up right. to be in the one <laughs> jack. Up. We sat back in my spare bedroom and we would record like three or four podcasts in one night and then we'd put them up. Yep. And uh, I think it might have been uh, four or five people listening there for a while. And yeah, it's been a wild ride, man. And we're just we're just hanging on and having fun. It has. I And I, I try not to look at numbers and focus on numbers too much. And I'm not going to reveal any numbers here on the air, but it has been amazing to watch the growth over the years of our listening audience and uh we've had some help you know every once in a while somebody like uh brian mclaren will come on the podcast and then his listeners and and followers find out about us and uh there was even that one time where uh wayne and brad on the god journey played <laughs> played our intro imitating them oh that was funny <laughs> we got a little bump from that too but oh. uh however you came to find us we're glad you're here absolutely and, uh, thanks for hanging in with us for these last couple of hours as we went round and round and round and back to where we started um, <laughs> we have a tendency of doing that don't we we do, we do. <laughs> ray it's always good to, to chat with you uh, you and I talked for a good hour plus before we even started recording, as is our custom. <laughs> um, but uh, it's always good to to get behind the mic with you and uh, to be part of the podcast. There there have been times when I wasn't sure I'd be able to ever get back here. <laughs> but uh, fortunately, I've had the opportunity to, to do a couple episodes with you recently. Um, well, we're having a great so, time, man. I just enjoy the ride. It's, uh, um, you know, you and I have been doing this for a long time, and it's funny because... Sometimes it's like you think to yourself, how in the world can we talk about something? Because <laughs> you and I, we finish each other's sentences so many times. Yep. <laughs> but, you know, I just feel like the Holy Spirit gets involved and I go away from this thing going, having all of these new thoughts and all of these fresh insights. And yeah, I love it, man. Great stuff. You know, how how long has it been since you left your church position? I was trying it's, to think how many years. It's actually it's been. been over six years now. It's been six years. Yeah, wow. yeah. 
I left um, in April of 2006. So wow, that's been over six years now. Six years, and we started getting together before then. Yeah, yeah, we started getting together the D, the the, the January before that. So okay, it's been yep, it's been sense. six and a half years since you and I have have been doing this thing, my brother. How, did you and I meet when I? I guess you and I met when I played keyboards yep. in your bookstore. Yep, I think it I came was in during the Christmas season and played. It was during the Christmas the season. Bookstore. You were taking a break, and we started talking in the book yep. aisle, and wow. uh, just started to, and just kind of hit it off. And after that, yeah, our breakfast. We were going to go to breakfast, and I assumed that we'd go eat breakfast and might spend an hour and a half. And two or three <laughs> hours later, we went out, and then the next week we did two or three more hours, and yep. we didn't quit for a long time. And now we just, now we just do. Let's see. Right now, my Skype call is saying two hours and forty seven minutes since oh we began goodness. this conversation. So, you know, wow. this is par for the course right here, brother. Yep, it is. <laughs> well, I got to get some sleep. I've actually got to work tomorrow. I've been off for a couple of days, so I got to get back to work. Time um, to hit the hay, uh, boys yeah. and girls. <laughs> but it's been great chatting with you, Ray. Absolutely. And again, thanks to all of our listeners. God bless y'all, and uh, tune in next time on Beyond the Box.